Religion was a major component of the worldview of the Civil War soldier, but it's often overlooked in historical writing. We'll get some insight into that topic when we talk with the editor of the Civil War Letters of Joseph Hopkins Twitchell, A Chaplain's Story, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Hi, Tom Bodette from Motel 6 with a word for business travelers. Seems business has its own language these days, full of buzzwords, like buzzword or net-net. And after a day spent whiteboarding a matrix of action items and deliverables, it's nice to know you can always outsource your accommodation needs to the nearest Motel 6. You'll get a clean, comfortable room for the lowest price, net-net, of any national chain, plus data ports and free local calls. In case you tabled your discussion and need to reconvene offline, so you can think of Motel 6 as your total business travel solution provider, vis-a-vis cost-effective lodging alternatives for Q1 through Q4, I think. Just call 1-800-4-MOTEL-6 or visit motel6.com. I'm Tom Bodette for Motel 6, and we'll maintain the lighting device in its current state of illumination for you. Motel 6 and a core hotel. World Talk Radio. Bringing the world to you. To reach a show host or guest during the live show, dial toll-free in North America, 866-613-1612. Or, if outside the USA and Canada, dial 001-858-268-3068. Welcome back to World War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking today with Steve Courtney, one of the editors of the Civil War Letters of Joseph Hopkins Twitchell, A Chaplain's Story. In our first segment, we talked about how uh, this young man of 22, Joseph Hopkins Twitchell, enlisted uh, in the the 71st New York Infantry Regiment, or as it preferred to be called, the 2nd Excelsior Regiment, part of Dan Sickles' Excelsior Brigade. Uh, Steve, let's talk a minute to give some some context for Twitchell's military career. Uh, just generally, where did the the seventy first or the, the second Excelsior Regiment serve? What uh, campaigns was it in? Well, it started out uh, actually the first winter of the war was a period of uh, just uh, fairly dismal guard duty in Maryland on the eastern shore of the Potomac. Um, <clears throat> But that, uh, with the Peninsula Campaign in, in 1862, of course, uh, they were part of the great movement to the Peninsula under McClellan and um, uh, fought all through that, that uh, rather long and drawn-out and unsuccessful effort. Um, then we moved quickly north for the um, uh, Second Manassas Campaign, um, Let's see, moved from there to, um, well, of course, in the spring of 63, they found themselves at Chancellorsville and then finally at Gettysburg. Um, the uh, And were they in action at most of these places? They were in action, uh, well, starting with Fair Oaks. 
uh, at during the Peninsula campaign. Uh, just that was their first moment of uh, their their first real charge. Uh, the the regiment that is the Excelsior Brigade minus Twitchell's regiment had already fought at Williamsburg. But um, but yes, they were in action in most of these places. I had I left out Fredericksburg, uh, at which they were held in reserve. Um, but uh, certainly it's Gettysburg as part of the Third Corps um, that Sickles fam- famously moved forward to the Peach Orchard without Meade's permission, um, and uh, and then were almost immediately beaten back as in the Confederate uh, attack there. Um, then later on, the, of course, the, the major uh, campaign they took part in was the was Grant's uh, overland campaign in early 1864, uh, during which they were, I think, fairly constantly in action, as much as any unit might have been. Um, and when Twitchell and a good many of them finally was were mustered out. Um, that the siege of Petersburg had just begun, so the the war was going into its sort of end game. And what does a chaplain do when the regiment is in action? Well, uh, accompany them as far forward as he can, and then, uh, as he describes at Fair Oaks very vividly, he and other non-combatants, many of whom were stretcher carriers and other you know medical personnel, uh, sort of would stop at one point, sort of. Wait behind a tree or something, and then, um, and then just basically wait for the wounded to be carried back. And then he, he, and, and this was particularly true uh, at Gettysburg. Uh, he was overwhelmed. They were overwhelmed immediately by, by wounded, and they had to keep moving their, their field hospital back and back as the Confederates advanced. Um, and so he found himself really completely consumed, I think, with, with medical duties during a battle. And afterward, I mean, Twitchell stayed in the vast hospital camp of Gettysburg for weeks afterward, along with his close friend, uh, Father Joseph O'Hagan, another chaplain who was finally brought to the brigade uh, as a Roman Catholic. And uh, again, I mean, it's like the union of opposites, uh, Twitchell and Twain. Uh, that is, that, I'm going to hold off on Father O'Hagan just for a minute, because that's a really remarkable story. But I'm yes. fascinated by this bit about the role of the chaplain in battle, as you say, uh, helping to retrieve the wounded, uh, to bring them to the field hospitals, and to serve uh, essentially as a nurse, uh, the way Walt Whitman did, not on the battlefield, but in yes hospitals did did twitchell have any medical training at all no not at all he picked it up as he went along um, i mean he was the first um, i mean of course the the regiment was the very first uh, medical trouble they had was um, was illness uh typhoid fever in the early part of the war long before they ever saw a battlefield and mm-hmm. that's where twitchell began uh working as a surgeon's aide um <clears throat> and and it had lots of some some very sharp comments to make about the competence of the surgeons and the um, and he felt that a lot of them had been appointed for political reasons just as the generals had and uh, it was uh, it, it's I mean his insight is just just uh, incredible but um, there was one point after Chancellorsville in which he was essentially left behind by surgeons who absconded with a group of Confederates. 
and um, you know could have been captured at any moment, but uh, basically treated them with with morphine, which is uh, was the standard uh, pain reliever of that day, um, and uh, you know uh, made great friends with them. You know, he said, I, 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 he said, we've had some political discussions, but uh, by and large, these are very nice young men. <laughs> these are Confederate casualties that he's Confederate talking. Confederate casualties left behind the lines, uh, left behind um, by the surgeons after Chancellorsville. So you've got the. Uh, as a chaplain, on, on the one hand, he is risking. Uh, he's certainly taking some risk. He's close enough to the front yeah. line to be in some danger. And he's willing to stay with casualties when the doctors are not willing to do so. Right. And it is kind of remarkable, I guess. Somewhere I recall hearing that it was not until roughly 1920 that you were statistically better off going to a doctor than not going to a doctor (laughs) in terms of the state of what medicine could actually do for you. And here we certainly see an example of that. This completely untrained person becomes uh, uh, the part-time regimental doctor. Absolutely. And I thought that was, was a, a very curious part of his story. Yeah. But he seems to do some good. You get the sense that uh, if if you were in the dire straits of a, a casualty in the Civil War, it would be better to have a, a caring and, and sensitive person there with you, even if he couldn't necessarily cure your wounds, uh, it would be a better fate than to, to be there by yourself. Yes. And at one point he says quite um, straightforwardly that you know, if the, because the men have gotten to see him perform amputations um, and, you know, seeing that he's a, a brave guy and could alleviate their pain, that uh, that, that would, would help him in... Um, in his spiritual duties, in his attempts to capture their souls, along with with uh, curing their bodies, and and that's never far. You don't read a page uh, in in this book without getting back to that. He's never never loses sight of what his his spiritual mission is as he sees it. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. And this uh, well, this brings us to the. The character Father O'Hagan that you mentioned, yeah. the, in in this era, most Americans statistically, more Americans were Protestant, uh, particularly Methodist and Baptist, if I recall correctly, than than any other denomination. Yes, but uh, Twitchell is a Congregationalist. Where does that fit in on the scale? Well, the Congregationalist is the old, um, basically the descendants of the New England Puritans. Um, they are uh, sort of because of they were a group that was well they are a group that uh, has a lot of close relation to Presbyterians, but uh, have a particularly regional New England cast. And in in those days, that really meant a lot because New England was a, a tremendously powerful area. I mean, both uh, industrially and financially, and um, and in terms of the influence it had on the rest of the country. I think John C. Calhoun, who himself was educated in New England, um, uh, once commented that every member of Congress, uh, a majority of the members of Congress had Connecticut forebears. 
Um, so it was a, a big thing to be a Congregationalist in those days. So that that sets that would set him off from the majority of soldiers in the Union Army. But then we've got yet another complication here, and that the members of the regiment, the Second Excelsior Regiment, are mostly Irish and mostly Catholic. Yes. And today, the the divide between Catholic and Protestant uh, is nothing like what it was in the era of the 1860s. Yes. Uh, yes. How, how does Twitchell view Catholicism? Well, Twitchell grew up in a Connecticut that was extremely anti-Catholic. Uh, the Know Nothing Party was very powerful in Connecticut, um, elected a governor at one point, um, controlled the city council in New Haven for a period of time, um, and the, the Congregationalists essentially saw their, their fairly homogenous uh, society being you know, polluted by these, uh, these people who they felt were in the, you know, the, the uh, thrall of the Pope of Rome and um, were up to all sorts of uh, evil things. Um, Twitchell, fortunately, avoided some of this. He, there was a, a young man who worked on the farm where he grew up, who was um, he was a farmhand from Ireland who had come over for, during the famine, and who taught uh, Twitchell Irish poetry, Irish phrases, uh, talked about the politics of Ireland and the British, and and Twitchell was enthralled. He was absolutely uh, he when he was a boy he followed this fellow around, so he was really in many ways he he wasn't um, coming to this. Uh, the world of Irish Catholicism cold. And in fact, he said a very, he said, I'm just going to read a very brief thing. Yes, please. He said, at least half, I might say two-thirds, this is in June of 1861, not long after he joined up, at least half, I might say two-thirds of my men are Irish Catholics. Of course, I cannot, it is not best that I should approach them as a Protestant clergyman. I shall try to make the term chaplain synonymous with friend, and while I wrestle in prayer for their salvation now, my aim must be first, in a legitimate way, to secure their confidence and respect toward me as a man and to allay all suspicion, or rather to show that there is no ground for suspicion of me as a proselyter, that is, uh, someone who's trying to win them over to Protestantism. And, uh, and he, kept, he kept to that. I mean, he... There was a point at which he got rather sick of being a, the chaplain of a Catholic regiment and tried to find another regiment to join. But then I think Father O'Hagan showed up, and um, and from that point on, they had a, a real working partnership. Um, there was one <laughs> there was one point at which a, a dying man asked Twitchell to go get Father O'Hagan from another camp where where O'Hagan was away visiting. Um, and bring him back so he could administer the last rites. And in Protest, among, among Protestants, particularly Congregationalists, the last rites were the most superstitious, um, you know, piece of nonsense you could imagine. And Twitchell wrestled with his conscience: Should I go and get Father O'Hagan and bring him back to for for this uh, to grant the request of a dying man, basically? Um, and um, he he went. He, he decided to do it, but he had a long discussion with O'Hagan as they rode back across these muddy Virginia roads, and um, 
and basically got let he let Father O'Hagan pretty much convince him that this man was it was a good thing that this was going to happen that even if you don't like the last rites this man is going to be you know truly uh, 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 sorry for his sins and and uh, have the kind of direct relationship with with God that the uh, Protestants uh, favored that uh, that it wasn't all just mummery and magic. Well, that 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 strikes at something that I think it's very hard to capture for uh, a lot of modern writers and even readers about the Civil War the uh, uh, intensity with which people thought about points of religious dogma. Uh, certainly, in, in modern America, there's a high degree of religious sentiment, uh, even religiosity, but it tends to get transformed into a political fervor, and there, there's not quite so much uh, bitter public dispute over points of, of theology. Theology, yes, you're right. But in this era, there certainly was. Oh yes, people people knew about this stuff and they argued about it, and um, it was very important to them. The idea that uh, uh, the Catholics were not uh, were not on the road to heaven. They they did they they were engaging as as you say in superstition in uh, uh, yeah. in, in idolatry in their uh, uh, regard for the Pope. That these yeah, were all all. Twitchell, for all his open-mindedness, um, he stuck a little uh, Saint Jude prayer into his um, into his uh, Civil War scrapbook, which is at Yale. And this prayer is covered with a brown blood stain. And he notes that he took this off the body of an Irish soldier uh, at Gettysburg, and that uh, this goes to show how how useful these um, such a thing as a Saint. Jude uh, prayer, you know, a, a religious artifact. Uh, uh, you know how how. Well, where's your Saint Jude now? Uh, exactly. <laughs> yeah. uh, didn't didn't do that guy any good. Not a, no, not from Twitchell's point of view. But he, uh, you know, he was very accepting, and and he loved Father O'Hagan. They hung out together after the war, and uh, they visited Mark Twain together. Um, but uh, but he would not go beyond a certain point in his theology, that's for sure. I, I was amused. Uh, I mean, certainly the relationship of Twitchell and, and O'Hagan is, is yet another of the very interesting elements that, that make this book uh, so intriguing. There is the, uh, the passage where uh, where Twitchell visits uh, the, the Roman Catholic College at Georgetown. Yes. And uh, we're coming to the break, but I'll just... I'll quote one line that you have here. Uh, they appeared, in view of the great physical mortification involved in celibacy, to regard all other fleshly indulgences as their purchased right. Such eaters, drinkers, and smokers I never met. So where the, the Congregationalist is also going to be a temperance man uh, who doesn't drink, uh, apparently uh, Father O'Hagan and his fellow Catholic priests, having given up uh, one pleasure permanently, feel entitled to engage in all the drinking. Yes, absolutely. They want, and, and Twitchell is, is obviously not too impressed by this, or, or maybe he is impressed. I'm not sure. <laughs> well, we're going to take a break on that note, and we'll come back in just a moment uh, to talk further about the letters of Civil War Chaplain 
Joseph Hopkins Twitchell with author Steve Courtney when we return on Civil War Talk Radio.